Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of LawPod. My name is Rachel Killeen and I'm a senior lecturer here in the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast. So our theme today, although slightly belated, is International Women's Day uh, and particularly the IWD 2022 theme of Break the Bias. So in that spirit, we are joined today by three legal practitioners who took part in a fascinating and pretty inspiring conference that the Athena Swan team organised in the law school last year, which celebrated women as legal changemakers. So directly relevant to this theme. So today we're joined by Leah Trainer, Claire Archbold and Maria McCluskey. And rather than me telling you about them, I thought it would be nice if they told you a little bit about themselves themselves. So I'm going to begin by asking each of you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and the work that you do. And if you're comfortable with doing so, perhaps a professional achievement that you are particularly proud of in the spirit of celebrating women. So Leah, I don't know if you would like to kick us off. Welcome to LawPod. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for having me. My name is Leah Trainer. I am a barrister here in Belfast and I was called to the bar in 2015. So I've been practicing as a barrister ever since. Um, I'm still at the start of my career, but for now, my main practice areas are civil litigation and public inquiries. And in terms of what we're talking about today, I should also mention that I recently graduated from Queen's with my PhD. And the question in my thesis was, what is the impact of gender on the careers of women in practice at the Bar of Northern Ireland? So only slightly self-serving. I suppose in terms of an achievement that I'm most proud of, I'm probably too early in my career to be able to point to a landmark case, but I am proud of the fact that I did manage to get my PhD within three years whilst also practicing. So I'll say that. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Yes, uh, could not be more relevant for today's conversation. Thanks so much. Uh, Maria, would you like to go next? Hi, Rachel, and thank you to you and um, everybody at Queen's for inviting me along today. So I have just recently started a new position. I am now the project manager stroke solicitor with the PILS project. Previously, and when we had the conference, I was an immigration solicitor at the Children's Law Centre. And prior to that, I had 14 or 14 and a half years um, experience in private practice as a civil litigator. So I've kind of come uh, quite quite the full circle. I'm also currently chair of the Human Rights and Equality Working Group of the Law Society of Northern Ireland. So I think um, for me, one of the things I'm sort of proudest of in my career is actually making that shift from the area that I sort of uh, trained and qualified and um, and working on it for quite some time before deciding that my heart really lay in the area of human rights. Um, and when I was working at Napier and Sun Solicitors, as it was at the time, there was uh, one of the admin assistants who said to me, because I was doing some volunteer work, um, and she said to me, you know, your eyes really light up when you talk about 
your um, experiences. And I was in Mozambique and Brazil. And so that led me to do the uh, Masters in Human Rights at Queen's, which has then subsequently led me, I suppose, to where I am today. So, um, yeah, that's probably one of the things I'm proudest of, that having, I suppose, just the confidence to take that leap into the human rights field fully in my career. Thank you. Brilliant, Maria. And just quickly, for those that might not be familiar with it, what's the PILS project? So the PILS project is a support organisation for um, members, organisations who are members of the PILS project who want to take uh, strategic cases which have a public interest element. So where they have no other ability to take those challenges, say that, for example, they've taken it as far as they can or they can't get funding, then the PILS project is the organisation or is an organization to which they can come for support in taking those strategic cases. So it may be by way of representation. So I'm a solicitor here and I can represent um, organizations or it could be through funding or indemnity in respect of costs. Um, so I'm one week in and I hope that that um, does justice to what this organization does. It is a fantastic organization and um, I'm very much looking forward to the, the months and years ahead. Um, and, and hopefully bringing many cases which impact and have change in the area of human rights and public interest. Lovely, brilliant. Congratulations. Thank you. And then uh, last but no means least, Claire, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, Rachel, and thank you very much for uh, putting this podcast together today. A great panel, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation. My name is Claire Archbold. I'm a barrister by training and a civil servant for the past 20 years. Uh, I'm also an honorary chair of practice in public law here at Queen's and uh, teach the practice of public law class. So I suppose I started out going to the bar because I thought that I was really interested in justice and making a difference. And it turned out that actually the bar didn't really suit me. That focus on one individual case uh, was, was not the thing that used my skills best. So uh, I went to, into academia and uh, when we got the Good Friday Agreement, I was asked to come over and work for the Office of Law Reform and discovered that actually uh, I could have saved myself a decade by going into the civil service straight away had I known it was a career, but I didn't. And so the first thing I would say to the audience is don't just think about practice. The legal profession is wider than practice and your legal skills can be used in lots of different areas. For me, that mix of being able to take a whole system view and being able to use your skills of negotiating and influencing and advocating within government is something that has turned out to be absolutely fascinating and I hope a good use of my skills and time. I'm presently the director of the Ending Violence Against Women and Girls strategy here in Northern Ireland. I've held that post since December and I'm really excited about what we can do uh, as, as a whole system and as a whole of society to try to work together to change that. Um, before that, I was Deputy Head of Government Legal Service. So the Departmental Solicitor's Office is the legal service for the devolved administration in Northern Ireland. We have, we had 100 lawyers, it's now, we, we had I think 70 lawyers, it's now tipping the scale at over 100. Um, and those are litigators, um, transactional lawyers who do things like commercial conveyancing and also advisory lawyers who advise the departments on their policies and their strategies. In addition, there's um, 
which we, we work alongside the Office of Law Reform, the Attorney General's Office and the Crown Solicitor's Office who work for the United Kingdom government in Northern Ireland. And I think the thing that I am most proud of in my career is that um, we have had about 50% of our lawyers are new since uh, since Brexit, since 2019. They haven't just come in because of Brexit, but all of those people have needed to be uh, to be trained and inducted and acculturated to how you give the best legal advice to government within the rule of law. We ran um, a series of lectures called The Practice of Public Law, which is also the basis for the course at Queen's. And I think we've now delivered that to over 100 people. And I've been delighted to see our new lawyers coming in and picking up the reins and really giving good, confident, quality advice across government. And that has given me a real buzz to see the next generation coming through and uh, and, and assuring that service for the future. That's lovely, Claire. And uh, as an aside, it's just great to have this variety of experience and expertise on the call. It's very exciting for me. Um, but one of the things you said, Claire, uh, there about you know seeing new people come through. I was thinking about how they probably appreciate having you around, uh, you know, to show them the ropes and to to help them. And I know in my own career, I find that female mentorship, whether that's formal or something more informal, has been extremely crucial to my development and gaining confidence as a female academic. Um, and I wondered if that was also the case for for you, and whether you could reflect on any women that have been particularly inspirational or helpful in your in your own careers. Uh, Maria, I don't know if you want to start on that one. Sure, yeah. It's interesting and, uh, to talk about um, female mentors uh, for a couple of reasons. I suppose first, personally, uh, speaking from my own experience, I have been very fortunate and lucky throughout my career to have been surrounded by women who have not only inspired me, but who have also really supported and encouraged me in everything that I have even thought about doing, because as soon as I put it out there, they would just encourage me to go for it. I mentioned before the woman that worked in um, Napier Sisters um, at the time and said to me about my eyes lighting up, that was a woman called Lorraine Wallace. And, you know, she's very, very quite introverted and, you know, but she was always interested in what I was doing. And she really encouraged me to go forward with my passion and interest in, in human rights. And it was really, I, I credit her with a lot of, you know, for a lot of where I am today. Um, as well as that also, I mean, I started my training contract at Napier Solicitors and uh, Bridget Napier, who's currently the president of the Law Society, was effectively, you know, she was m my boss and never once did she pass up an opportunity to introduce me to someone to, you know, really, I suppose, big me up in front of people who I would have thought, oh, I just want to melt into the background. And she would have brought me forward, introduced me to anybody that she was talking to and would really have praised me and probably, you know, given me cre more credit than maybe I was due. But I just always admired that. And I can continue to see her doing that now in her role as president of the Law Society. Um, and I'll come back to that just in a wee second. But um. One of my colleagues, when I when I started in Napier Solicitors, who was just in the door, I suppose a year year before me, a year more qualified than me, was Maria Glover, um, and we were great friends from the start. 
but also we were very much supportive of each other. So in any time that you were thinking, do you know what, I want to ask for a pay rise or I would like this for the, for the organization, we were fully open with each other. So there wasn't really that competitive aspect. We always, you know, were very much equals um, and, you know, we had each other's backs in a lot of ways, both internally and externally. So those are some of the women, I suppose, at the very early stages of my career. Um, then moving on, I started, to, you know, I always had a bit of a hankering to the bar as well. And so I completed the advanced advocacy course. Um, and Fiona Donnelly, who I'm sure maybe you all know as well, um, was a great, another great sort of inspiration to me in terms of her attitude towards work about her you know, the balance that she had, but also, um, I suppose, again, the importance of nurturing and sort of other people like myself who were more junior in the profession brought me onto the advocacy working party and really had faith in me um, to, to do that role. Very encouraging of getting me out there again in positions that I probably wouldn't have been in, but for her introductions and, and her encouragement. And, you know, now that I'm in the Pills Project, I have to say I'm only a week in, but my colleague, Emma Cassidy, who I have come into, has, you know, she sort of almost lives and breathes the, the Pills Project. And she is so um, enthusiastic, very positive, and again, a very collegiate atmosphere already in a relatively, you know, small workplace. And that has seriously boosted my confidence in this new role and, and thinking, do you know what, this is a fantastic organization. I want to, to live and breathe it as well. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to the sort of months and years ahead because of the energy that she has given me um, in, in this role so far. So um, the last thing I just want to finish on is just going back to Bridget Napier and that thing about mentoring. And the in the Human Rights and Equality Working Group, we um, launched the Law Society's first ever um, diversity and equality survey last towards the end of last year and as a result of um, the results that have come out which are you know we'll probably get on to talking about the fact that women are not in more senior positions particularly in private practice that the law society are now going to develop a work plan to, to address the issues that the survey has brought out and one of the things you know that I know that the president is very very you know she will absolutely bring bring back is the mentoring scheme. Um, so, you know, lots of people have said, you know, that this is really something that's so vital, um, you know, particularly for women starting out in their careers, that they have someone that they can go to for advice, that they can, you know, speak to in a very open manner and who can then encourage and inspire them to, to take the steps that, you know, that, that people really want to take and to help move their careers on. So, um, yeah, very much looking forward to the work of the the Law Society in terms of addressing some of those issues. That's brilliant, Maria. Really nice to hear that that's coming back in. And I really liked there how you highlighted the ways that mentorship looks different at different times and in different contexts. And it's something we can give to each other. You know, you can be encouraging of your colleagues as well as those that work for you or, you know, lower down in an office hierarchy or whatever and also the simple act of just introducing people to other people you know helping mm -hmm. folks build their networks and and relationships and the importance of that uh, is really important as well uh leah i know you're uh, um you were just saying you're, you know you're just kind of starting your career and building your career but i wonder if there's anything you wanted to add about um mentorship or even or inspiring women in your life 
I was so engrossed in Maria's answer that I should have been thinking of my own. Um, but I think I would agree with what you said, Maria. I think it is sort of, it does take a village and really it is about having a good support system around you. And even at my early stage, I can still see how at different times, different women have mentored me and encouraged me and inspired me. So I, I was just reflecting there. And I think even before I started, it was really, you know, my mum would have encouraged me quite strongly to go for the bar and maybe at that time, I wouldn't have had the confidence really that I would have had now. Um, and really watching her, I suppose, build her own career and mentor other people. I look back and think that that was mentorship in a way. You know, I think she she is a senior lecturer in business management, but she encouraged me to do my PhD at the start. Um, so I probably wouldn't have done that without her. Um, in terms of day to day in my job, I also am very, very fortunate to have some really lovely colleagues who are just brilliant I, I don't think I could get through the day without them you know when you are early in your career and you're facing an issue you maybe need a precedent or maybe you know something's gone wrong and you need to vent or you know you're you're thinking about doing something and you're just not entirely sure you know it's brilliant to have women around you who are just so encouraging and you can do the same for them so it doesn't always need to be within the formal structure of a scheme and I think I used to associate mentoring with that and even when I reflect on my time at Queen's doing my PhD, my supervisor, phenomenal woman, Professor Tres Murphy, um, she is someone who really embodies that. So I think when I look back now, I realize Tres mentored me without me even realizing. But I also watched her mentor her colleagues um, outside of a formal game to help them achieve promotion. She mentored other students. You know, she just really does embody that. And I think we've all heard the phrase about people who pull up the drawbridge, but she is the opposite of that. And I think it's just a reminder that we can all do that in small ways every day for each other um, and really encourage and lift each other up rather than, you know, j just thinking that it is something that only takes place within the formality of a scheme. But I am really encouraged to hear that the Law Society are bringing that back. I think that is helpful too. You know, it certainly is helpful at an early stage to maybe meet new people you wouldn't have met otherwise. So I think that's great too. Yeah, thank you, Leah. And um I'm lucky enough to supervise a PhD student alongside Therese as her as primary and uh, I, I really see that firsthand how she supports and um, encourages her female PhD students and also gives time to her colleagues. It's nice to hear her celebrated and also shout out to your mum, you know, the original mentor. Um, so Claire, you'd already mentioned being inspired by those coming up underneath you which is also lovely you know just to complete this circle of how we're inspired and motivated by different people but I wonder if there's anyone or um, any experience you want to shout out in terms of your own progression as well. I think for me there's two things um, that probably amplify what both Maria and Leah have said. One is that I have been very fortunate in my career to have had strong female role models and female line managers so there was my brilliant master at the bar, Jackie Orr, who was one of the, the first women to really make a career at the bar. And she, I'd say her gift to me was teaching me to be a little bit more street smart than I was when I arrived. Um, and as well as that, just showing me the nuts and bolts of, of advocacy and of how you actually persuade a jury as opposed to just standing up and talking. Um, when I came into the civil service, um, my first line manager was Judina Goldring, the head of the Office of Law Reform. She's now the Commissioner for Public Appointments. And Judina was very good at giving me the confidence to, 
to say what I thought and road t- kind of giving me a space to road test my ideas so that when we went into ministers, I had the courage as a new civil servant to really make the arguments to them and to really present the evidence. And finally, Lorraine McAlpine, who was my line manager when I was up in a job where I really maybe wasn't wasn't happy and therefore wasn't performing as well as I might have. And Lorraine had the guts to say to me, this isn't working for you, is it? And to make a suggest. And I think being able to hear that from a mentor is a really, really important thing. She cared enough to say it and I respected her enough to hear it. And she suggested that I might take a different track and uh, encourage me to go for a job in the Lord Chief Justice's office, which is possibly my favourite job ever as the Lord Chief Justice's legal secretary, which I thoroughly enjoyed. So different ways that you can mentor people. And I think the other thing, as you go into a legal career, Leah is absolutely right, it takes a village. You're lucky in that there is a generation above you. For me, there was just starting to be a generation above me. But there are also your peers. Now, there are, it's International Women's Day, but we have to say it, there are women out there who will not do you a favour because it's women or men. There are people for whom it's all about them. But there is also a village of your people, people who are interested, women who are interested in the same thing that you're interested in, who are going to be lifelong friends, who will be your wing woman and you will be their wing woman. And I'm fortunate to have a group of those people. If you are lucky enough to have a group of those people, they are worth their weight in gold because they make your life a life rather than a hard slog. And they will help you through the difficult decisions that you have to make. And they will be a sounding board and they'll allow you to they'll allow you to not be your best self and they will encourage you to be your best self. So absolutely get your tribe around you. So that's what I would say. Yes, yeah, so important. And, and pass it on. When you are as old as I am, make sure that you pay it forward as well. Yeah, when you've reached the uh, ripe old age of twenty-four, eh, Claire, <laughs> blossoming with youth on the on the video uh, chat. Put to twenty-five. Let's let's be honest. <laughs> Uh, thank you, everyone, for sharing those positive experiences. So there's three themes as part of the Breaking the Bias International Women's Day agenda. And the first is celebrating women's achievement. And as that's the most positive, I thought we would start there. And that was a really lovely reflection on positive experiences and mentorship and collegiality. Uh, the next theme is raising awareness against bias, which obviously takes us down a darker path. Uh, so it's good that we started in that positive place. So I wondered then, as a, just a basic opening question, if you might reflect on how you have seen or experienced gender bias showing up in, in the legal profession. Uh, Claire, would you like to start with that one? Well, when I was at the bar 30 years ago, um, women were expected to do family law. There, were, there was one female QC. There were a very small group of three or four very experienced legal practitioners who were women and then others coming up through and it was an environment which was not friendly to women but where there was a great camaraderie among those women who had gone in to give the glass ceiling a good hard kick Um, and I have been disappointed to hear from Leah's research that some of those facts are still there. The doing family law 
the somehow it being felt that because you have superior emotional skills due to having two X, two X chromosomes, you should be better at family law, which is more emotionally draining, less financially rewarding and more time consuming than things like commercial law. Um, I would have hoped to have a judicial review practice, but unfortunately, as I didn't have either a Y chromosome or a judicial review solicitor in the family, that proved to be a little challenging, but I found a different way of doing that. Um, and I think that in the civil service, um, there, when I went into the civil service first as a student in the 1980s, there's very, very few senior women. The reason there were so few senior women was because women had to leave until the mid-70s when they got married. And so the cohort who would actually have been coming up through, they literally weren't there, which is why Miss Sloan, who was my grade seven, A, was there and B, was such an anomaly. But we're now, um, I recently did an International Women's Day event for the civil service and we still have issues, uh, not so much of overt gender bias, but of a system which is not structured to be accommodating to women's lives. Um, but when I put my hand up, I said, who is a manager in this room? It was an audience of about 200 people, but 100 people put their hands up. Because if you are uh, the senior filing clerk who's managing the junior filing clerk, you're already a role model. And so every woman who is there, who is holding space, is changing the shape of the space and it's not the most sophisticated um, avoiding gender bias strategy in the entire world. You need policies, you need procedures, you need legal change. But there is also something to be said for, it's like, you know, when you're wearing a pair of shoes and you break them in and you wear the shoes around the house, you wear the shoes while you're watching television and gradually they become the same shape as your feet. Um, by being in a job, you're changing the shape of the job by being in the organization. You're changing the shape of the organization. When you find that the job is, is, is pinching or crushing or not working, that's when you talk to others and you get together and you act more, more collaboratively or you act more officially to change it. But just being there is something really, really important. Yeah. Thank you, Claire. Leah, Obviously, this is also a huge subject of interest for you. I wonder if you can reflect both on your experience, but also potentially on your research, if you feel like you can draw on some of that for the conversation. Yeah. Um, well, when you asked the question, my mind immediately went to sort of, you know, the women in family law. And I think it has gotten better to reassure Claire. I think it has improved slightly, but definitely we do see... <laughs> We definitely do see more women in family law than in crime or commercial and even in civil litigation. You know, it's something that I've really come to appreciate now that I am sort of practicing in that area. Very often I am the only woman in QB2 when I'm appearing and it's quite strange. You know, you do notice when there is someone else there, you're like, oh, there's two of us. Um, but, you know, I think that it's an outworking of what I call gender horizontal occupational segregation in my research. And really it's it is to do with that essentialist idea that women are more naturally suited to family law because it involves, you know, a greater deal of client care and maybe some of those more quote unquote soft skills. Um, and I think Claire's right, you know, it is sort of perceived as less prestigious. And I don't think that that's 
really warranted having practiced in family law myself. You know, it is an incredibly difficult area to practice in. At times it can be quite legal and technical. You are cross-examining expert witnesses in terms of social workers and psychologists and so forth. And so I think it doesn't really get the credit it deserves. And the women who practice in that area work really hard and don't really often get the credit they deserve. Um, so I think that is one of the most obvious ways that we see gender bias at the bar. I think then there are those more subtle ways. There are more sort of latent, benevolent, well-meaning things. And the other thing that sprung to mind for me um, is really two really silly things and they're probably harmless, but I do think they're an example of gender bias. And it's, if I'm coming with a suitcase full of papers, you know, there's very often a man there willing to help me lift it or offering me assistance. Or if I walk over to a door, you know, I had a very funny example one time of a man who was that wee bit too far away from the door to hold it open for me. But he ran to the door um, to open it for me to ensure that, you know, God forbid, I would have to open it for myself. So, you know, we things like that, I think it is harmless, but it's also an example of gender bias in the sense that I don't really see men offer, offering to hold each other's suitcases or carry them up steps or, you know, things like that. So I think it is sort of all around in maybe more obvious and less obvious ways. But it is still there, you know. Yeah, thanks, Leah. That question of chivalry is, is really thorny, yeah. isn't it? Where, you know, it's nice to hold doors for people, but when it comes loaded with this idea of you needing help or needing protection, it can subtly shift the meaning to something that actually isn't welcomed, you know, or yeah, would be welcomed by a range of people. <laughs> yeah, there are times where I've tried to hold a door open for a man and he stood back to wait until I walked through it. You yeah. Know, so, I don't know. It's just one of those things that I'd noticed. And I just thought, I, I don't see them doing it with each other, you know. So there are small things like that that are less, much less important, clearly, but they are still worth noting, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. And as, you know, as we deal with ma maybe major challenges like equal pay and access to professions and things, we can sometimes feel like, or some people can feel like gender bias is a thing of the past, but that's when you get into the more insidious ways that it reasserts itself and maintains itself, even if it doesn't look quite the same anymore. Uh, Maria, I just want to give you a chance to jump in on that, if there's anything you would like to say. Yeah, speaking of the, the opening or holding open of doors, it just sprung to mind something that came up last week and a member of the profession had contacted the Law Society about, you know, this tradition of, uh, you know, um, addressing your letters to dear sirs. Um, so the Law Society had actually run a circular, I think it was maybe last year about, you know, that it was going to change this practice. Um, but I think that it still persists probably in a very, you know, in a lot of communication. So something that we're going to highlight again, but again, those, all those small things, you know, they may seem small, but when you take them on the whole and on all together, I think they do still have, um, you know, an impact and, and, and they are an issue. Um, I suppose for me, in terms of gender bias, it's something, again, it's just been mentioned about the, you know, females um, in tr traditional, in quotes, um, areas of law, family law. And as Leah said, when I worked in civil litigation, I often noted that as well, that I was maybe the only woman in the courtroom between barristers and solicitors. So, um, you know, it does definitely still persist. Um, and I think that as, as well, again, when we talk about the equality and diversity survey and the results will show, which is of no, I don't think it's going to come as any great surprise that, um, you know, as, as you go up 
in, in an organization, the number of women in higher roles decreases, despite the fact that there are actually more women coming into the profession than men. Um, so definitely it is still present in the profession. Um, and, you know, I think it will probably come on to, you know, caregiving roles um, of women and the fact that our organizations a lot of the time don't um, are not flexible enough to allow women to, you know, uh, continue their caregiving roles and, you know, practice in an area or, or in a role that requires um, sort of more commitment um, in a sense. So it's still there and, and definitely lots of work still to do. Um, but good to see that it is changing slowly but surely. One of the things that seems to be coming out here is uh, to do with how law and the practice of law is perceived and the kind of characteristics that are associated with that profession. You know, it's come up a few times, this kind of uh, channeling of women into maybe areas that seem more feminized, even though, as Leah says, it's, that's not true at all. And so I want to ask a question that was I was going to ask a bit later, but I think it's it's coming out of the conversation anyway. And that's, is it that we expect women to adopt more masculine or like you know traditionally perceived as masculine traits in order to succeed in law but actually it's the legal sector's working culture that's problematic here you know if we think about certain areas of law maybe perceived to be quite adversarial and competitive and require this kind of bombastic personality but should it be that way so i guess what i'm asking is is it that women need to change to succeed in law or should uh, the legal sector actually be changing its culture. Uh, Maria, would you like to, I can see you nodding along, is, would you like to come in on that? Yeah, I think that that sort of was tied in a bit to the last question. I didn't want to jump ahead, but I certainly think that in some organizations and in some practices, there, I think that some of the partners, uh, people higher up in the organization are essentially kind of feeding the beast um, and assigning maybe trainee solicitors or more junior solicitors to practice in certain areas which are perceived to be maybe, um, you know, the family law is more suited to female practitioners. And also I think there's almost like a, a gaslighting of um, emotionality and and that emotion being emotional is in some way um you know a negative thing when in fact i think what makes and i'm, I'm speaking from my own personal experience what makes me emotional is when you say that i'm not capable of doing something you know so then when you try to do it and and you're maybe like oh well that you're being too emotional and that actually makes you more more and it's passionate more than maybe emotional and i think that um there are lots of issues there in terms of, you know, putting women into these so-called traditional roles, but also then, and I don't know whether this is the biases of the individuals or that's a stereotypical sort of way of doing things that, oh, the client wants a strong practitioner, therefore we're going to, you know, put this man um, into that or onto that case or whatever it might be. Um, when in fact, just because maybe a woman isn't as loud or as forceful doesn't mean, uh, and of course doesn't mean that they're not as good at the job. Um, so yeah, I I think that that would be, those would be my reflections on that. Yeah, and I just, when you were talking about emotion there, this 
privileging of certain emotions over others as well. You know, I think there's an idea that women are emotional, but men are, some men at some points are angry, but angry is seen as a legitimate emotion, whereas, you know, potentially the emotions that we associate with femininity are, are more characteristic of women as we perceive them are the ones that are deemed a problematic emotion. Uh, you know, we're not inherently more emotional than men. You know, it's just what exactly. emotions we value and which we consider a weakness. Um, Claire, would you like to come in on that issue? Yeah, I, I think this is something that fascinates me because one of the reasons that I'm glad I work in the civil service is that it is a human-friendly workplace. Now, civil servants listening to this podcast will go, what about our pay rise and what about my terrible line manager? I'm not saying it's perfect. But I'm saying that part of my job is to make sure that the people below me and around me are doing their best work and I have a duty of care to them. And and that is something that's really important to me, whether that's because I'm a woman or whether it's just because of who I am. Let's have that debate. But I think in the legal profession, that idea of paying attention to the person, to the people you're negotiating against, to the people that are working for you, to the juniors who are doing 5,000 hours a week is often absent. And that's something that I feel as a, a loss and a lack in the profession. I also think that women travel a very, we are allowed a very narrow bandwidth between either being on the one hand, being too, too, too mannish and too aggressive. Uh, that would be the words that we put in it, not the words I would use or being too too weak and too emotional. So I always love looking out for senior leaders who are modelling good practice. And I really love the fact that we have a female lady chief justice who is changing the shape of profession and the perception simply by being in the role and by being who she is in the role. Similarly, we have a female attorney general. Um, but also we see male judges. And I'm interested when you're talking about what is an acceptable emotion. One of the most powerful things that I have seen recently is a couple of our male judges who have been dealing with completely horrific criminal cases. And they have um, now not a whole lot. They've not kind of broken down and wailed but they have been visibly moved to tears when they've been doing the sentencing. And I think that that it was appropriate and it gave permission for that emotion to be in the room. And I think that the having people in positions of power who will widen the boundaries of what is permitted in the legal sphere is really important because we're human beings. Um, one of the things I'm really interested in is trauma-informed legal practice. I think that looking at what has happened to our clients or to the other side or to the personal litigant who we're dealing with and asking how is their experience and their trauma going to be impacting how they engage with me or how they are able to engage with me. It doesn't make you their social worker, but it does um, make it more likely that you will be able to do your job. I think that's really important. I think it's something that you could say feminizes the legal process. You know, it changes law from simply the question, why do I want to be surrounded every day by angry people who are shouting? Um, 
And I think it's important for us um, as women, if we're interested in expanding the modes in which we can practice law. But I also think it's important for all lawyers because as artificial intelligence takes over more of the legal sector, the bit of law that requires you to be human is the bit that you will need humans to do. There we are, sermon over. Not at all. I could have listened to you for hours. And I, th- I think what's interesting there and an important point is it's not necessarily about men versus women occupying per- certain spaces, although that is also important. It's about the gender norms and the traits that we value, you know, and creating space for those uh, emotions or reactions that might be dismissed as feminine and therefore not appropriate, regardless of whether that's, uh, you know, a man or a woman expressing them it's about the culture and how we how we conduct our work uh leah i want to create space for you to come in if you'd like to add anything to this conversation well yeah i absolutely agree with everything that both maria and Sarah and you rachel have said i think what we do need to see is a cultural shift i think that it is the culture of the profession that needs to change um and the reason i say that is because really our profession, and I'm thinking of the bar again, but it does apply to the solicitor's profession and probably many other professions in that they're all founded on this notion of the unencumbered ideal male worker. And really that stems back to, you know, the days where you had the archetypal male breadwinner and the woman at home who was looking after the children. And, you know, women have been in the legal profession now for some 100 years, but really our attitudes haven't kept pace with that. And it's really about sort of, as you say, making space for different emotions and rethinking what, you know, the ideal professional looks like, whether that's the ideal academic, the ideal civil servant, the ideal barrister, you know, rethinking what that looks like, what qualities that person has, because it's not necessarily about, you know, the most robust, loudest, most booming voice in the room when it comes to being an advocate. I think there are other skills that are equally as important and don't always get sort of the the mention that they deserve. So. I do agree with your comment, Rachel, as well. You know, I think the greatest number the patriarchy ever did was convincing all of us that anger isn't an emotion at all and that it's fine, you know. Um, so, yeah, I agree with all of that. Yeah, thanks, Leah. And that notion of the unencumbered man um, brings me to something else that I wanted to talk about, which is the impact of, of COVID-19. So we've seen, you know, various studies conducted in the legal profession over the last couple of years have shown that the impact of COVID-19 is not gender equal. And that's also true in the legal sector. So we have women's job losses outpacing men's and women who are increasingly either leaving the workplace or are considering leaving the workplace. And I wondered what your thoughts were on that, if you felt comfortable sharing how the pandemic impacted your own work, that would be interesting, but also more generally, why do you think the pandemic is having this gendered impact uh, on working life? Uh, Claire, would you like to start? Well, this is something that has really struck me both from my own experience and from the experience of everyone around me. The pandemic has brought our lives into our working lives. And I just take my hat off to all of the colleagues, all of the council, all of the opposing solicitors who have been homeschooling, managing children while while they have been trying to continue to give us 37 and a half hours a week and turn in their cases on time. Um, You know, there was one day that I, now I'm not a parent, but uh, during COVID I had caring responsibility for for three households of of elderly relatives. And uh, 
that took time because as as elite women in the legal profession, we often outsource our care responsibilities into the care economy. So um, I had a housekeeper. Uh, it sounds very grand. I mean, she did two hours a day, but um, she was absolutely brilliant. And I relied on her to keep our home life ticking over. Um, my, my, my parents and my husband's family had cleaners. Um, we had a gardener. We had a dog walker all of which allowed me to give the right amount of time, as I thought, to my work. During lockdown one, we had none of that. And you could say, yes, so there are women who um, are not senior civil servants, who are not lawyers, who didn't have any of that to start with, and who for whom every week involves all of the hours that it takes to clean, to cook, to look after. Now, I would say that um, I have an equal marriage and there were two of us doing it. Even at that, I do not know how we would have managed children as well. Um, and I think that while I'm fortunate to have an equal marriage, um, the way that things are set up in Northern Ireland, very many women are bearing the burden of, of, of care for their families. And sometimes that's an economically rational choice because the man's earning more money. Uh, and sometimes it's the expectations within the couple and sometimes it's the sheer practicality of it. Um, plus, there are women who are looking after all of those things on their own. Um, there was one night I was um, doing some email at midnight and I sent out eight emails and I got eight emails back from my colleagues who were all also working at midnight. Some of them were working at midnight because they had just they'd watched everything on Netflix and they were. It was an alternative to doom scrolling. Uh, they had got into this idea, you just have to work all the time because effectively we're at war here. And uh, that's a bad thing that, you know, and some people had put in a seven hour day homeschooling their children and um, looking after everything on the home front. And we're now putting in a seven hour day at work at the end of all of that. So um, I'm also at the minute very concerned with the thought of all of the women, the children, the vulnerable people who have been at home with abusers during the past two years. So um, it has shone a light on it. If I wanted to do one thing coming out of the pandemic, apart from reshaping the workplace, it would be reshaping the care economy because we need to value the work that is needed to, um, to, to allow us to work outside the home. Anyway. Yeah, thank you, Claire. And I appreciate your candor about the amount of, you know, other paid employment it takes for you to just be able to do your job and manage uh, your own caring responsibilities. Because I think often the fact that to be successful often requires some kind of a, a form of outsourcing. Uh, and, you know, there's all kinds of class dimensions to that in terms of who can succeed and who can manage in the Correct. face of uh, these challenges. So it's, I think it's, it's appropriate to to drag that into the open and say I think that that's it's, what's necessary. It's also important for me to name my privilege. And it's yeah. important for your listeners to think when they are starting careers and entering relationships, what what um what compromises are they going to make? What compromises are their partners going to make? And that may be to say, well, do you know what I am going to outsource stuff? Or 
that there are very few of my junior male colleagues who have taken the second career so that their wife can take the first career. And that's a trend I'm watching with interest. But have that conversation. Don't sleepwalk into it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Leah, um, do you want to share some reflections that COVID-19 has impacted either your own work or, or the profession more generally? Yes, well, I think when I was listening to Claire speaking there, firstly, Claire, you have my utmost respect um, for managing all of that and really for, as you said, naming your privilege. And I suppose it's it's helpful, I think, for, for all of us to really reflect on the privilege that we have and recognise that, you know, it is difficult. I, I mean, I have colleagues who also have children and somehow manage to be self-employed barristers at the same time and have maintained a practice. And quite honestly, I don't know how they do it. In terms of my own practice, I'm now busier than I ever have been. And I know I'm incredibly fortunate to be able to say that. You know, I do recognise that myself. It has been an incredibly difficult time for some of my colleagues and particularly those at the junior bar and um, those who are just starting out. It has been very difficult. Um, but what I will say is that any sense of work-life balance that I had before COVID-19 has been decimated um, to a point where it's probably quite unhealthy, if I'm being honest. And I think that's probably due to the greater role of technology and this culture of remote working. And there is just this expectation. And it always was there before at the bar because we are self-employed. I think sometimes people think that all we do is work. And for some of us, that is all we do. Um, but I do think that it has worsened during COVID. Um, and really now there is an expectation that you are constantly available. And particularly during lockdown, when people knew you were at home, it was like, well, why can't you open the, the laptop and do this for me now, you know? So I think once the gendered impact of that isn't immediately obvious, it's there because the reason that I am able to, the reason that I've benefited really from that, if I'm being totally honest, is because I don't have children. I don't have dependents. I have no current responsibilities at this stage. So, you know, I am perhaps a little bit closer to that unencumbered male ideal worker in this moment. And so for that reason, it, I have benefited. But for many others, and particularly for those with any sort of current responsibilities, it really has been incredibly difficult. So I suppose in terms of coming back to gender, because that is my pet subject, um, it isn't immediately obvious, but it definitely has played a role. And whilst I have benefited, that doesn't mean that that isn't operating in the background. Yeah, thanks, Leah. And in the spirit of not encouraging this over uh, burdening and, you know, not creating space for your time, I'm aware that we're reaching the end of our time and that probably need to get some lunch. Um, so Maria, uh, you know, you can feel free to speak to the COVID-19 issue, but I also want to just move to the last question that I wanted to put to you all, which is if you were seeking to create a fully gender equitable workplace, you know, what, what top change would you like to see? And we'll keep it to top change in the interest of, of winding down the conversation. So, uh, Maria. Thanks, Rachel. I'm going to kind of link the two of them um, because just, I suppose, from the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact, I suppose, it had on me. And I do think that this is sort of gender biased in a sense because I never really hear men talking about imposter syndrome um, and just at the outset of the pandemic I had taken on a new role so my imposter syndrome was up to the max because I was at home between four walls on my own so that was really one of the biggest negative things and we've all heard of sort of 
the impact on mental health and in general, you know, across genders, obviously. But um, I think from a work perspective, I think that potentially has had maybe the greatest impact on, on women. I'm not basing that on any studies. I'm just sort of basing that on personal experience. And that whole thing about, you know, uh, women in caregiving roles and, um, you know, how, how much how much pressure w- was on women in general over the pandemic. Um, and I think that um, just to link it to the last question and, and you know, uh, a gender, uh, a more gender equitable workplace, one of the things I, or one of the most important things I think that we can hang on to from the pandemic is the realisation that workplaces can be flexible. Workplaces can trust their employees. Workplaces can, can give their employees the autonomy that they need to have more, you know, more balanced lives in the sense of fulfilling both their professional responsibilities and also their caregiving responsibilities. And I don't think that it's fair to say, well, back to normal, back to the office, back to the nine to five, because I think, you know, anybody that I know, you know, felt that pressure to even do better in COVID and, and, and did prove that they can do fantastic jobs with all of that flexibility built in. So I'll keep it short and sweet in the interests of time. Yeah, I really support that so much. And I think the pandemic really showed that we don't need to be on all the time and we don't need to be in the office all the time. And there's lots of ways to be productive. Certainly found that in my own work as well. Uh, Claire, why would you magic us into a gender equitable workplace? Um, I think there's 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 a line from Seamus Heaney. There always, in every podcast in Northern Ireland, there has to be a line from Seamus Heaney. Them's the rules. I don't make them. But the line from Seamus Heaney is everything that is given can be reimagined. And I think that the pandemic allowed us to reimagine what the workplace looks like um, in in ways that we wouldn't have got there for 20 years if we hadn't been forced to. And to find that nobody will die if you have um, a team meeting virtually and that people will actually do their work if they're in their own houses. Um, for the civil service, we've now also got um, local pods. We have local work pods, so co-working spaces. So if you live in Oma, there's no need for you to trolley all the way into Belfast unless there's a particular reason for you to be there. But if your own house is cold or you don't have a printer or you live with 75 housemates, there's a co-working pod. Where you, or if you live alone and you want to go and you know see some other human beings, there's a co-working pod in Oma that you can go to and, and work there. And I think that all of those ways of reimagining are potentially the biggest leap forward that we have had. But I would also say that constant vigilance is the price of freedom because there's also the risk that we then end up with a two-speed workspace of all the women who stay at home and all the men who go into the office. So um, just reimagining is, is, is the thing. If I was the fairy godmother to a gender-equitable workplace, the gift I would want to give it is reimagining. Thank you so much. And Leah, we give you the final word. What would you do to achieve a gender equitable workplace? I think I would piggyback on Claire's suggestion of reimagining. And for me, I think it's really to do with reframing our ideas of success and who the ideal professional is. And I think one thing that struck me when I was doing my research, that one of the final questions I asked my interviewees was, what do you think is the biggest challenge facing women in the legal profession? And it, it was quite disappointing that so many of them said being taken seriously 
And I think the first building block to reimagining is really respect and respecting women, unlearning some of our biases and really trying to rethink what it means to be a professional and how we see each other. Yeah. So I've said that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Leah. Yeah. Uh, and thank you to all three of you. This was a great conversation. As I predicted, there was so much more we could have discussed, but time is against us. Uh, so I just want to thank you again for for making this time and for dealing with the rearrangements that were needed to make this possible. I know that you're all very busy uh, and that's a strong theme of the episode, actually. Uh, you know, the challenges that we face in being productive, but also making space for ourselves. Uh, so you've been listening to Law Pod. I am Rachel Kalina, senior lecturer here in Queen's University of Belfast. Uh, my thanks go to Lauren Denster for helping us with this episode and Richard Somerville for his production assistance on Law Pod.